Our scripture text this morning is from Judges 19, verses 1 through 3, 22 through 30, chapter 20, verses 1 through 2, 21, 1 through 7, and verses 20 through 25. Judges 19, verses 1 through 3. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem to Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him, and he went away from her to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and was there some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him to her father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. Judges 19, verses 22 through 30. As they were making merry, their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let him bring them out now. Violate them and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house, where her master was, until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, Behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then he put her on his donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel." And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Judges 20, verses 1 through 2. Then all the people of Israel came out to Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot and drew the sword. Judges 21, verses 1 through 7. Now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter in marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, the God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel, that today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel? And the next day the people rose early and built there an altar and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And the people of Israel said, Which of all the tribes of Israel did not come up to the assembly to the Lord? For they have taken a great oath concerning him, who did not come up to the Lord to Mespah, saying, He shall surely be put to death. 
And the people of Israel had compassion for Benjamin, their brother, and said, One tribe is cut off from Israel this day. What shall we do for wives for those who are left? Since we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them any of our daughters for wives. Judges 21, verses 20 through 25. And they commanded the people of Benjamin, saying, Go and lie in ambush in the vineyards and watch. If the daughters of Shiloh come out to dance in the dances, then come out of the vineyards and snatch each man his wife from the daughters of Shiloh and go to the land of Benjamin. And when their fathers or their brothers come to complain to us, we will say to them, Grant them graciously to us, because we did not take for each man of them his wife in battle, neither did you give them to them, else you would now be guilty. And the people of Benjamin did so and took their wives according to their number from the dancers whom they carried off. Then they went and returned to their inheritance and rebuilt the towns and lived in them. And the people of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. And they went out from there, every man to his inheritance. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So I asked Carol, just read through the three chapters and just give me your first impressions of what you read. And the only thing she said to me was, she said, I really feel sorry for you. She said, I, I feel very sorry for you. It's, um, it, this is, and I appreciated the sympathy. This is a, probably some of the darkest scriptures, I think, in the Bible. And yet we're confronted with the reality that all scripture is given by inspiration of God, profitable for doctrine, teaching, training, in righteousness, so that the man of God or the woman of God is thoroughly equipped for every good work. And in Romans 15, he, Paul speaks and he says, for whatever was written in former days was written for, for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So where is the hope in this text? Well, let me remind you that this is an epilogue. Right, so th these, these five chapters are not recording events that take place after the period of the judges, but they take place during the period of the judges. Uh, it's, you know, it's kind of, if you want to know what it looks like when there was no king in Israel, and if everyone does right in their own eyes, here's what it's going to look like. And we know it's during the period of the judges because uh, the person named the high priest was Phineas and in chapter 20, 28, and he was the grandson of Aaron. So this is probably in the first half of the period of the judges. It gives us a picture of it. Now, last week we met a Levite, and this Levite was part of that cast of characters that showed us what kind of do-it-yourself religion looks like. You know, we're going to do it our way. This idea of everyone does that which is right in their own eyes, even in the way we fashion gods, the way we think about God. We're doing it on our own. And this week we meet another Levite, and he shows us the result of that life. Now, this is the, the religious chaos, the do-it-yourself in religion, results in do-it-yourself morality. If last week was farcical and somewhat humorous and had irony in it, 
you know, which is even sarcasm, which is how I tried to make the sermon last week. This week is dark, it's foreboding, it's, it's horrific. You know, I had a mentor who used to remind me when I was in seminary, he goes, the Bible is not just a book about theology. It's not just about God. It's about anthropology. It's about us. It's about who we are. And, and, and often we say the scripture is like a mirror to us. It's like holding a mirror to, to see the parts of us that we may not always want to see. I think that's what we have here. In these three chapters, we're going to see clearly that man's sin is deeper than you can imagine. It, it goes beyond what you think. It, that we're going to see that in 19. In 20, you're going to see how man then tries to bring correction or, or justice or judgment to the evil of this world and how it's often excessive and how it's misguided. And then in chapter 21, we're going to see how, how man then tries to solve the problems that he has helped create. And he does it in very ineffective and hypocritical ways. You know, if you had to sum up these three chapters, it would be, we are unable, this is part of kind of 101 of Christian faith, we are unable to save ourselves from our issues. We're just unable to do it. And that's where the hope is. The hope is that God knows this, and God has moved towards us with a king that saves. I want to, get, I want to wait until the end. I, I want to walk through the darkness of this passage first before the light comes. Because, you know, the darkest part of a day is just before dawn. That's the darkest part of the day. And that's what we see here. It's just before the dawn, right before the, the sun begins to shine forth in its glory. So let's look at man's sin is deeper uh, than we can imagine. Look at 1, 2, and 3 with me in chapter 19. In those days, when there was no king in Israel, a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, and his concubine was unfaithful to him, and she went away from him in her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah, and there was, and, and there was some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. Uh, kind of an interesting way to begin this story. It raises all kinds of questions for us. You know, this idea of what's a Levite, a religious man, doing with a concubine, and why did he wait four months? We're not giving any answers to these. But we do find out that she is unfaithful. Now, this is kind of interesting, because what does this mean? Well, in Hebrew, it literally means she played the harlot. That means maybe she was promiscuous. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it says that she was angry with him which I tend to go with that, that view, that she was angry with him because you see that the father accepts him, and the father accepted her in, which wouldn't be the case necessarily if she was a, a prostitute or given herself to other men. And you see that he's going to speak kindly to her, as if he hadn't spoke kindly with her, and now he needs to. But the story doesn't revolve around this. It really revolves around this over-hospitality. We didn't get to read all of it, but the father of this concubine, of course, they begin to feast and eat and drink and make merry. And it's one day, two day, three day. He's trying to leave. No, one more day, one more day. And so on the fifth day, we find in the afternoon that he finally kind of pulls himself from the clutches of the father-in-law and they begin their journey. Now, this Levite and concubine begin journeying back toward their home. They go towards Jerusalem. But Jerusalem was still controlled by the Canaanites. 
So it was part of the promised land. It was the land that God had given. But you know what? They didn't drive them out. You find that in Judges chapter 121, where you read that Benjamin, the control, they didn't drive out the Canaanites. So he said, we're not going to stay in Jerusalem. We're going to go to the next town. Gibeah was the next town. Gibeah was a settlement of the tribe of Benjamin. And so they go there. And they go to the main square. Now, you always go to the main square. You have to remember that there are no hotels, there were no motels. So those who were traveling had to be kind of, had to be taken in. And this was an important part of life, hospitality, that you had to drop. You had no motel, you had no hotel. Where would you stay? But it was more than that, because it was a love for neighbor that was a display of love for God. Now, this is where it gets dark. Nobody took him in. Nobody took him in. So then this old man from Ephraim took them into his home and he began to have a feast with them and provided for them. It's then when the wicked men of Gibeah surrounded the house, pounded on the door, demanded for the Levite to be drawn out so that they could have relations with him. And of course, the host, aghast, no, take my virgin daughter. They refuse. So then the Levite, it says the man seized the concubine. It was the Levite who seized the concubine and threw her out to be assaulted all night. Now, if you're wondering, this story seems remarkably close to another story in the Bible, you'd be right. It's, it's almost a mere copy of Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. The same features are there. Two strangers come into town. They're both hosted. The men of the city in both contexts around the house both, both stories contain that they wanted the man to come out. Uh, both hosts offered the virgin daughters to go out. It, it, and the reason that they're parallel is the narrator wants us to see that Israel is the new Sodom. They're the new Sodom. This is what theologians call the canonization of Israel. Instead of Israel driving the Canaanites out, the Canaanites were driven in. They became like Canaan. They became like the gods they worshipped. They became like the people with whom they lived. Now, to make matters worse, you have a Levite, a, a, a priestly character, assistant to the priests. He goes to bed and sleeps, gets up in the morning, prepares to leave, which implies he was getting his things ready before he even checked on his hmm. concubine. And he goes out and says, just horrific words, get up, let's get going. You notice then that the narrator calls him master because he's no longer a husband. He's a property owner, and his property got ruined. It, it just shows you the absolute darkness of this scene, the darkness of it. That, that's 19. It, it's a dark chapter, one of the darkest, I think. So what kind of instruction can we pick up? If Paul said that this is to provide encouragement, what kind of encouragement do we draw at this point in the story? Well, I, I think there is some real encouragement for us. And number one, we see that we're reminded of the breadth and the depth of our sin. We're reminded of the breadth and the depth. Think about it for a minute. Not one character is named in the entire chapter in all three chapters, actually, except for Phineas. Not one person is named. Why? I think the narrator is trying to make universal the nature of sin. 
This isn't Joe. You can't say, well, that was the way Joe was. He was a bad egg from the beginning. No, there's no names here. You can't apply them to anybody. All of them played a role. Obviously, the wicked men of Gibeah did. But the Levite, the Levite, the one seizing her and throwing her out, but even the host offering his virgin daughter for hospitality's sake? And what about the father-in-law? If the father-in-law hadn't kept them all that time, even not letting them go until the afternoon, he kind of set off the whole chain reaction. You see, sin is just across the board. But it's not just across the board, it's incredibly deep. The horrific nature of the sin, nobody can imagine what this woman went through. And then the Levite, get up, sleeping through the night, and then the father offering a virgin daughter at the sake of hospitality, what is going on? And we read this story, and we kind of back away from it. We say, well, that couldn't be me. That's the wicked group of human, of humanity. That's not me. And yet, we don't have to look far into our own history here. Think about Rwanda, turning on each other. Think about Bosnia, the rapes. Think about stealing the women in Africa. All this happened in the last 50 years. I mean, think about ISIS. The ability that man has to descend into sin is profound. We've got to, like smelling salts, wake ourselves up to that. That's the one doctrine that is most provable is the depravity of men and women. G.K. Chesterton, I've quoted this before, but I like the way he says, he says, certain theologians, he was an English essayist, journalist, who came to faith later in life, said certain new theologians dispute original sin, which is the only part of Christian theology which can really be proved. Paul says, Paul said it earlier in Romans, he says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 all the way to 21, he collects these verses from Psalms and Deuteronomy, and he kind of does a systematic theology on nobody is without sin. Now, interesting for Paul, in Romans 1, he kind of shows the depravity of the Gentiles. But in chapter 2, he shows the depravity of the Jews, religious and non-religious. Both have fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to remember this, the nature of this. We want to distance ourselves from it. The breadth and the depth of sin is incredible. But also we learn here that we're called to mourn for this kind of sin. You know, in a world where religion is chaotic and morality follows suit in chaos, it's the weak who get wounded. The woman, this nameless woman, she was wounded. Those men should have protected her, but they used her to protect themselves. But it's always the weak. It's the children. It's the unborn. It's the disadvantaged. It's the alien. It's the, it's the infirmed. It's the old. You know, you can always tell the nature of a religion by how they treat their vulnerable. You know, how a religion treats their vulnerable, those who are vulnerable, it really displays its, its beauty or its absolute ugliness. Now, I realize when we bring up these situations, we have disadvantaged people, we have the sick, we have older. You know, the policies that need to be written to serve them are profoundly difficult. We need our best minds at it. 
But at a minimum for the Christian, we can begin with mourning the homeless, the unborn, those who are most susceptible to getting just run over by culture. We need to mourn them. And then the third thing I would point out from this first chapter is simply this, that it really alerts us to the source of the problem, and that is our sin. You think about it, all of this tragedy, there is no outside threat that they're facing. It's all internal. It's themselves. They did what is right in their own eyes. They decided to live independently of God. They pushed God to the periphery of life. They determined morality and spirituality and you know the other relational aspects of life. They did it without God. We're independent of God. It shows us the problem is not cultural or educational or societal. The problem is theological. A do-it-yourself religion is going to lead to a do-it-yourself morality. So, so, you know, this is for all people, though. So even if you're here and you're not religious or you're not super spiritually inclined, you're forced to consider, what do you do with the evil of the world? A lot of people say that evil disproves God. I think it actually proves God. How do we even know what evil is without God and without a standard that he has given to all? But, but what do you do with the evil in your own heart? Your rage, your anger, your lustfulness, your jealousy, your envy. What do you do with that? I mean, generation after generation has not dealt with this problem. We've improved technologically, medically, educationally, culturally, sophisticatedly. We've improved on other, but people haven't changed. It's the same stuff. Rwanda, I, it's the same stuff, generation after generation after. This is why the scriptures call us. You have to be born again. You have to be born from above. No educational change, no philosophical adjustment is going to change humanity. We have too much evidence to prove it. It won't happen apart from God. It won't happen apart from crying out to God, asking for his mercy and grace to make us new. Every one of us in this room has to approach that day. And if you have done it, well, praise God. If you haven't, you need to, or you'll never change. You can dress up. You can change. Some moral reformation can take place that maybe makes some minor tweaks, but it's not a true revolution that needs to happen. But for the Christian here, for us, I'm thankful that we have the spirit now, that when you do walk in sin, you're convicted. And conviction, let it have its perfect fruit of repentance and seeking forgiveness from God and from those that you have, you have sinned against. It could be at work where you're walking in some unethical ways. It could be in marriage when you're not walking in faithfulness. It can be your own body and your own person. And you feel that conviction of sin. That's the grace of God. He's not punishing you. He's drawing you to himself. Because he knows that true joy will be found at his right hand. So we want to repent. Seek forgiveness. A person can really identify the depth of their Christianity by the freedom that they have to repent. The gospel gives us the freedom to say, I have sinned greatly. And I'm sorry. The gospel gives us that freedom because God has accepted us in his son. To, to hesitate, to repent, to always make excuses, to always blame shift, you're not enjoying the fruit of a gospel 
that bids us to come to God and to be forgiven. So that's the first thing we see. Man's sin is, is deep, much deeper than we can imagine. But secondly, look at man's response to this sin. This is what we see in chapter 20. So, so this Levite has sinned and committed a gross sin in dismembering this woman and sending her to the 12 tribes. Look with me at 1 and 2 of 20. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba. That's like saying from Maine to Florida. Everybody came, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people and all the tribes of the Israel presented themselves in an assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. You can imagine, this has never been done before. There is a unity that they haven't seen in a while. It's an impressive unity. And yet it's tragic, because this unity isn't forged to drive the enemies of Israel out of the land. This unity is forged to move towards civil warfare, the destruction of God's own people by themselves. This is the picture of what we do. And so the 400,000 gather together. They hear the report from the, the Levite. Now, if you go on to read chapter 20, you're going to find the Levite, not surprisingly, left out some key details about the story, like his own culpability of pushing her out to the men. He says five times, me, my, I, in his kind of report, defending himself. This is the ugliness. They gather together, though, and they make war with Benjamin. At first, they apply to Gibeah, send your people out. They don't. They apply to Benjamin. Benjamin is the tribe over Gibeah. And here's tribalism at its ugliest. They side with their brothers. And you know a society is in trouble when you defend the guilty. Benjamin sides with the guilty. And then there's civil war. Now, two battles take place. And the tribes of Israel lose both, 40,000 men. Now, why? Why was God not on the side, as it were, with the tribes? I don't know. It, it could be that they had sinned. It, it could be because when you read about the battle, it's amazingly close to Joshua 8, when Israel lost before the town of Ai. If you remember the story, Jericho fell. Joshua was leading, the walls came down, they destroyed it, and God said, don't take anything from Jericho. One man, Achan, took some clothes and some precious jewels in defiance of God. In the next battle, Israel suffers its first defeat in the land. They just got in the land. They tear their clothes, they weep, they repent before God, and God reveals the nature of the sin. This is what happens here. They lose two battles. They go to Shiloh, they repent, they they weave, they put on sackcloth. They said, what is, God, how have we sinned against you? They, uh, they appeal to God through Phineas, the high priest. And then God grants them the next victory. They destroy the soldiers of the tribe of Benjamin. 600 men escape, and they go to this wilderness, kind of a, the rock of remnant. It's a wilderness kind of hideout. But notice what happens at the end of chapter 20. Look at 48. Because in 48 he says, And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword. The city, men and beasts, and all that they found, and all the towns that they set on fire. You know what they're doing? Here are the tribes of Israel. They're trying to bring you know, this judgment to the town of Gibeah. They wipe out the whole tribe. Men, women, children, beasts. They do them all. This is genocide. 
This is our effort to bring justice to some evil in the world, and it turns out to be almost a genocide. This is the nature uh, of, of human judgment. It's so, it's so in error. Now, I appreciate the criminal system of this country. If you've been to a third world country, you will appreciate it greatly, uh, but it has its faults. One Northwestern professor did a survey in 2007 of 271 cases uh, in the Chicago area of various types of crimes that were decided by juries, and he found that one in eight they decided in the wrong way. Uh, you know, new data had come in, he did this, one out of eight were wrong. Human justice is far from perfect. We need to think about that when we level judgment to others. We just don't know. You don't know what's going on. You don't know motives. You don't know what's behind the scene. We have to be cautious. Be self-suspicious of your own perceptions of people. Human justice is often wrong. It's often wrong. And human justice misses the mark because it goes after behavior. I, I, I like law and order. We see that in our country now. We want law and order. But we have to recognize, as important as it is, it doesn't change people. You'll always need law and order. Because people, as we saw in chapter 19, will always be tending to do what's right in their own eyes. But you also see that, that our judgment is often excessive. You know, you, you take this case. Why did they have to kill all of these people? Why women? Why beasts? Why slaughter everything and burn it all with fire? It's excessive. It's fueled by bitterness, by rage. You know, much of our judgment is coming out of our own bitterness and rage. And, and we go over the top with things. You know how it is. When you explode in anger, you know, you get built up and, built, and then you blow your top and you say things and you may even do things that you repent and, and you feel bad about it. You're like, ah, shouldn't have said it, you know, and you, you say more than you need to say and that's what we just do as people. And the, the passage, when you read at the end of 20, aren't you saying, even if you're not a Christian here, would you not admit that you want a better justice than we have? I mean, don't you want a society where justice is pure, peace-loving, there is righteousness that rules the land? I mean, we all want that. Whether you're a Christian or not, you want that. And, and it really calls us to long for a government that is without spot or error, wrinkle or blemish, that is a righteous government and rules righteously and fairly. You know, the whole lex talionis, you know, that is, you know, the, the crime ought to fit the punishment. We tend to have trouble with that. That was God's idea, by the way, that the punishment must fit the crime and you see how rarely does it fit the crime. So when you go from 19, you see the depth and the depravity of sin. In 20, you see our inability to bring about a right judgment. We need one to come to judge rightly. But then you go to 21. Now, now we begin to get our hands in the pie. We want to solve the problem that we create. So in 21, the people are facing, now, they, they're, now they're regretting what they did. Isn't that amazing? They're regretting what they did. Uh, they've just wiped out a tribe. There's 600 men left. There are no women. So that means the extinction of a tribe. Look with me at 21, 1 to 3. 
He says, now the men of Israel had sworn at Mizpah, no one of us shall give his daughter to marriage to Benjamin. And the people came to Bethel and sat there till evening before God. And they lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. And they said, O Lord, God of Israel, why has this happened in Israel? That today there should be one tribe lacking in Israel. This is such a treatise of us. Here they're blaming God. I mean, somebody should have just stood up and said, go look in the mirror. It was your swords that were swinging. But they look to God. They blame God. And they make that rash vow. So now they're confronted with a problem. What's their solution going to be? Okay, we just wiped out everybody. We need women. But we've made this rash vow that we can't give any of our women to them. So how is that tribe going to be populated? What do we do? So they come up with a couple ingenious ideas. They go through the book and they look that Jabesh Gilead sent no men to fight the Benjaminites. And so they said, well, they ought to pay for that. And so they go there and they kill them all, men and women, any woman who has known a man. Boom, they're all dead. And they take only the women who have not known a man, 400 virgins. Well, that kind of gets us there, right? I mean, here you're to see kind of the lunacy. Of, of ourselves. Remember now, we're looking at ourselves here. We're not looking at the culture here because Israel now is more akin to the people who profess God. So they say, okay, we're 200 short. What are we going to do? Oh, here's an idea. Let's go to Shiloh. There's a festival where young virgin girls dance in fields in celebration. 200 will be in ambush and they'll go and take those women. Now, the lunacy of this is they're committing murder, kidnapping, destroying families. These women are forced to consummate a marriage, so that would be rape. All, why? Because they made a vow to God. The hypocrisy is just, I mean, it's neck deep. Hmm. We're going to keep our, we're going to keep our promise to God. And we're going to break all these other laws. It just takes your breath away. So, so where is the hope in this? What do we, how do we walk out of this dark, dark room? Well, you notice the last verse. Look at the last verse. Because in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You've seen that repeated. You've heard that repeated. What the narrator is calling for, you know, this was written post-judges. <clears throat> so the narrator is saying... We see our need for a king. This is what we do without a king. This is what we do when we do things right now. We need a king. We can't save ourselves. We need a king. So the narrator is, and the people saw that. They did. God did give them the common grace to see that. And so they need a king. But the king that the people wanted, if you were to go on in 1 Samuel, is going to be a king who can fight our battles. He can solve our problems. He can fix our society. It's what we do when we know we can't help ourselves. That's why people who have no relationship with God, when they get in over their heads, whether it's cancer or some relational problem, we turn to medicine, we turn to government, we turn to psychologists, we turn to those things that are transcendent, that maybe can help us more than we can help ourselves, but they don't turn to God. That's what they're doing here. They're turning to a king, but they're not turning to God. Now, God, because he is so kind, he will bring a king. 
And this is what judges has been, each week have been hitting. We want a king, but we need a king from above. We need a king who's going to come and save us. Now, not, not surprisingly, the book that follows this book is Ruth. Not first in second Samuel. Ruth follows it. Ruth is a weak woman. She's a weak woman and she is not even of Israel. And yet God providentially brings her to Boaz and they get married and they have a son and the son is Obed. And Obed has a son. He grows up, gets married, has a son. His son is Jesse. And Jesse gets married and has a son and his son is David. So, so you see the, the, the way that God has constructed his word is that this call for a good king is David. David was a high watermark, but he wasn't the king we need. He pointed to it, though, and a descendant of his was. And this is, of course, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of David, son of Abraham, brings, brings Abraham, who received the promises of God, and David, who received the promise that his kingdom would last forever. And that falls on the shoulders of Jesus. Jesus came. He came not to save the righteous, but to save the sinners. He came to deliver us from the depth of our sin. We see that over and over. And Jesus came to bring justice. He lifted up the marginalized. He lifted up the women. He cared for those who were broken, the tax collectors, the prostitutes. And Jesus came to, to solve the issue, and he did that by making us new. He said, in me is life. In me, in Christ, is life. And this is what leads us right to the communion table. Well, the providence of God to bring communion to a passage like this. You know, the, the, what most commentators speak about is the absence of God in this. Where's God in this? You know, God pops in at the end, but where's God in this? Well, God's absence in this is to cause us to want his presence. And his presence is seen in the incarnation. That Jesus Christ came to take our sin. So he just didn't come to understand the nature of sin. He came to take it upon himself. And we know he bore our sin because God said, because he said to his father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You knew he was bearing a load of sin for the father to forsake his own son. So he's taken upon himself our sin. When you look at the bread and you look at the cup, his body was broken under the load of our sin. But, but he also came for perfect justice. He bore the justice of God for our sins. He bore the wrath of God so that God is both just and the justifier of those with faith in Christ. So when you look at the bread and the cup, you think justice has been served. Both a foretaste of it for our salvation, but will be served in the end. And then, then you see that he has come to make us new. He's come to give us new life. We now can be born again through faith in Christ. We can be different. You know, I always love to keep in my mind's eye a picture of myself before Christ and a picture of myself after Christ. I, I, I keep those pictures in my mind because I don't want to forget what he's done. It's like we sing amazing grace. I was blind, now I see. He changes us. That's what Christ has come to do. He's come to make us like himself. Christ is the perfect human. And he's taking humans made in the image of God that has been distorted and deformed, and he's making us like himself. 
So we can rejoice over that. So when we come to the bread and the cup, we have given, we have been given much. God, all the other religions of the world, we seek to escape the trials of this world, and, and we seek to go up into these spiritual realms, whatever, however the religion defines it, we want to escape. And yet he enters. He comes down and dwells among us to save us. So he's the king we long for. So when we celebrate the table, we look backwards at Christ, but we do look forward. Don't forget to look forward. A king will come and bring a perfect government. The promise in Isaiah is that a government will rest upon his shoulders and it will be a government of peace, righteousness, and justice. We long for that. We pray for that. When you see the injustices of this world, instead of simply condemning them and distancing yourself from them, let that be a time where, God, oh, Lord, come quickly. Lord, come to us. Bring about a full deliverance for your glory and for our good. Let's take a minute now and just ask God to reveal to us those things that we need to confess before we take the the bread and the cup. Ask God to cause you by the power of the Spirit to draw you to himself by faith. E even, for the, um, even for the Christian here, sanctify me in these moments. And, and for the one who's here and who has not moved towards Christ by faith, then consider Christ and his glory. And I'll pray for us in just a moment.